Onyx One Month DAP program evaluated Resolute Onyx DES in about 1,700 complex high bleed and risk patients with one month DAP. Visit Medtronic.com backslash Onyx One program to see the data. Resolute Onyx DES is not currently indicated for high bleed and risk patients on one month DAP in the United States. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for September 2020. I'm your host, Jelly Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. This is the podcast where I play you some audio clips from the interviews that TCTMD reporters did in recent weeks while pulling together the news. For the past six months, our COVID-19 coverage has really dominated our monthly stats. This marks the first time in half a year that cardiology stories have truly taken up residence back in the top 10. I'm going to take some solace in that. Maybe it's a hint that many of you are tuning in once again to the topics that first drew you to cardiology in the first place. But if you're anything like me, believing this is also an act of will. We're also hungry for the world to get back to normal. I'll tell you what wasn't normal, although it's starting to feel that way. Covering the world's largest cardiology congress with my cocker spaniel lying pretty much on top of my slippered feet. Several of the top stories on TCTMD for September stemmed from studies presented at the virtual ESC Congress. Let's start with one of those. TCTMD's Caitlin Cox has been our cultocene reporter for some time now. At the ESC last month, likely with a cat or possibly a hermit crab at her feet, Caitlin covered the Ladoco 2 trial. As you may recall, the first Ladoco trial was published in 2013 and suggested that colchicine, an anti-inflammatory indicated for gout and pericarditis, might be effective in the setting of chronic coronary disease. But the study was small and didn't involve a placebo. Fast forward to Colcott, released at last year's AHA meeting, showing that colchicine lowered the risk of secondary CV events compared with placebo in patients who'd recently experienced NMI. This year at ESC, we got Ladoco 2, which circled back to chronic coronary disease and enrolled more than 5,500 patients. Over a median follow-up of 28 months, patients randomized to 0.5 milligrams of colchicine instead of placebo had a lower risk of cardiovascular death, MI, ischemic stroke, or ischemia-driven coronary revascularization, a risk reduction of about 30%. Caitlin's story captures the wide range of enthusiastic reactions to these data, for his take, she spoke to Richard Kovacs of Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, the immediate past president of the American College of Cardiology. Kovacs had some pretty positive views, but also one major beef. Here's part of their conversation. I view this as not just the story of colchicine, but the story of inflammation. Yeah. Um, and can we intervene on inflammation and see favorable cardiovascular outcomes. I think this is another important piece in that puzzle. Will it drive a guideline change? I am not sure that this will guide drive a guideline change for a couple of reasons. You know, the guidelines will want to point to a very particular patient population. And now we have we have studies in recent post-MI and then we have studies in patients who have chronic coronary disease but I'm still not clear on which patients and when we will add on colchicine. And then the third major takeaway and a big disappointment to me was the under-enrollment of women in the study. 
15, 15% women in the study. I think that is, um, that I don't know how that happened, but it is, uh, going to be looked at as a, just a, when you talk about now which patients are we going to be treating, the lack of enrollment of women in the study is a complication. Clinical trials have been paused or canceled during the pandemic, but on the other hand, observational studies along with opinion papers and viewpoints are having a heyday in the medical literature. Some of the latter seem to me like a whole lot of grandstanding and pontificating, but others have helped to stimulate some healthy debate. In the latter category is where I'll put a paper led by Rianne Davies of the University of Washington in Seattle. She and others working in the field of high-risk coronary interventions put forward some recommendations around what it would take for operators to attain competency for the most complex procedures. Their paper was published in Catheterization and Cardiovascular Interventions. As Davies told TCTMD reporter Todd Neal, the idea was to start the discussion around what an actual high-risk fellowship training curriculum might look like that could then be considered by centers that already have such a program or are thinking of starting one. Hallmarks of their proposal are minimum procedural volumes needed to achieve technical competency, including 150 successful retrograde or antegrade chronic total occlusion PCIs, 100 intravascular imaging cases along with minimum numbers of unprotected left main, hemodynamic support, complication management, and more. There was a lot of reaction to this proposal on Twitter, as Todd captured in his story. Ultimately, he reached a range of operators for their take on this. We actually updated this story several days after it first ran to include more of those voices. For now, here's Robert Yeh of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, who agreed with the overall thrust of the endeavor, but had some words of wisdom. I think this document sets an aspirational bar for what institutions should be thinking about who are interested in really successfully training the next generation of complex PCI operators. And I I think in that way, it has made many people who do complex PCI and train uh, fellows in in these techniques something to think about and to be self-critical about about the type of experience that we are all providing to our trainees. At the same time, I think it, it also provokes, I think, very important discussions about, you know, what needs to change in our field terms of the practice of PCI to prevent, you know, any sort of unintended consequences that might emerge from this. And it also, we need to think carefully about what has generated the inability for our standard training practices to be able to provide better experiences for complex PCI training in the first place. For some reason, many of the most read stories on TCTMD in September dealt with structural heart interventions. We've heard that valve programs put on hold during the peak of the first wave have been starting up again. Maybe people have also been looking for news in this subspecialty because it's a reminder that medicine does evolve and progress, that some problems can be solved. Reporters Michael O'Reardon and Laura McEwen both covered TAVR studies this month that helped fill in some blanks. Laura's story covered an analysis from the Partner Trial Series published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology and led by Robert Cabedo of Cleveland Clinic, Florida, in Weston. This analysis looked at the 5,190 patients who underwent TAVR in the Partner 1, Partner 2, and Partner 2 Sapien 3 trials between April 2007 and October 2014, zeroing in on changes in chronic kidney disease. 
Across all stages of CKD, they found, most patient status remained either unchanged or improved. Only one patient in this group progressed to CKD stage 5 after the procedure. Only 2% of patients required dialysis following TAVR. Here's Cabedo speaking with Laura. I think that's the key message here, that TAVR uh, is more likely to improve rather than worsen kidney function in patients with underlying kidney disease, if you will. And the reason that's important is, is until now, we really have not had any clinical guidelines, any clinical tool or data to kind of look at, look at a patient straight in the eye who's got stage four kidney disease and needs a valve replacement and tell them, hey, listen, your odds of ending up on dialysis are very high, are rare, are very unlikely. Um, in fact, there's a chance your kidney function may worsen or may get better. We, we just didn't know, right? We, we had no idea what the impact of TAVR on CKD was all about. Mike's story, meanwhile, covered an analysis addressing a question that is unlikely to be tackled in a manufacturer-sponsored trial anytime soon, namely, which TAVR device is the best? Here, as Mike learned from speaking with Saman Sharma of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, there really is no evidence showing that one valve is better than any other. But, on the other hand, certain patient characteristics or anatomic factors, such as the presence of annular and subannular calcification, or the need for future coronary access, are things that can influence decision-making. You'll have to check out Mike's full story to get the details. But as Sharma told Mike, there is at least one factor that should sway the choice of valve. Basically, if you talk about what is the single factor which will make you to decide one versus the other uh, in native aortic valve, and I would say the calcium. Hmm. Okay. Calcium, I mean, every aortic valve has a calcium. But severe calcium, calcium involving the annulus, sometimes the subvalvular apparatus, there we know that if you go with the balloon expandable, you'll have a more annular rupture, you'll have a more uh, perforation, and uh, therefore you want to go with the self-expanding valve, or with the third group, we call it a mechanically expandable. I myself covered a structural heart paper this month. This was an analysis I've heard rumblings about for the past year, ever since doctors Grayson and Packer proposed their theory of proportionate and disproportionate mitral regurgitation to explain why the mitra clip works in some patients and not in others. In other words, potentially, why the mitra clip worked in the COAPS trial, but not in the French mitra-FR trial. To wit, the mitra-FR investigators did a post-hoc analysis wherein they looked at their trial's primary endpoint among patients with different degrees of MR severity and left ventricular remodeling, according to treatment group. The upshot? Even in patients with a ratio of MR severity to left ventricular and systolic volume consistent with the notion of disproportionate MR, no benefit to the mitra clip was seen. When I spoke to David Masika-Zetun of the Ottawa Heart Institute in Ontario, Canada, who was lead author of this analysis, he pointed out that MITRA-FR did not have enough patients with a ratio of more than 0.2 to be tested. So it's possible that the threshold proposed in the literature by Grayson and Packer to define disproportionate MR was too low. But he also had some other theories. Here's part of our conversation. Another explanation why we didn't have any benefit in our success is that maybe other parameters that matters a lot, like in my 
just by this parameter. Okay. So I don't want to be too negative. We were not able to identify a subset that will benefit from CLIP based on match by far. And for me, the key message is that we need to uh, work harder to identify the patient that might benefit from the CLIP and not treat, treat uh, everybody. It's unfortunate that it does not help, but it's still a, an important result. That is all I've got for you this month. If you haven't done so, I hope you'll delve into all of our ESC Congress coverage, since there's plenty there that I didn't get to tell you about. I should also mention that our most clicked story for this month was our COVID-19 daily dispatch. As I hope you know by now, for the past six months, Todd Neal has spent the first few hours of every workday summing up the top research and policy news about COVID-19, with very few days respite from this task. With so much misinformation circulating out there and so many elements to keep on top of, I think Todd's Dispatch is a clear, concise synopsis of this space and an invaluable resource. Hope you check it out. All of us are now gearing up to cover the annual TCT meeting known this year as TCT Connect. I'll have lots to tell you about that, no doubt, in next month's podcast. In the next few days, I'm actually going to be recording a virtual episode of On Record with several of the TCT course directors to hear what the meeting has in store. Find that video on the TCTMD homepage in early October. You may be wondering why you didn't hear any audio clips from TCTMD reporter Yael Maxwell this month. Don't get me wrong, Yael wrote plenty of great and timely stories in the first half of September, but these last few weeks she's had much more important matters on her mind. Motherhood! The whole TCTMD team is so excited to hear about the happy arrival of baby Jeremy mid-month. And we've got our producer, Daniel Parker, back in the multimedia groove again for this September podcast, after some time off welcoming his own new baby boy into the world, Miles. Hello, Miles. Thanks so much to the whole TCTMD team for your hard work, month in, month out, chasing down the news. Listeners out there... May you all be finding ways to keep your spirits up and doing the things that keep you grounded and hopeful. Thank you so much for listening to Heart Sounds. <laughs>